Some of you may recognize this quote because I'm pretty sure that I've used it before. If I were more organized, I would have tracked the fact that I've used it before, but uh, it's still worth hearing again. Uh, The late Dallas Willard, he was a professor of philosophy uh, at the University of Southern California, and he was an icon of Christian scholarship and a man that was not given to exaggeration. He wrote this, he said, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. If this is your first time to join us, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, We're in a series that we've been in. We started last week. It'll go uh, till next week. And it's called Looking Back, Looking Ahead. And it's an unusual series. For those of you who are visiting with us, this is an unusual series in that normally I have like a a specific passage that I'm using to preach from, and I try to go into uh, significant depth about that particular passage. But this particular series is really more like a family talk. And it's a talk about how we're doing as a church. Last week, we looked uh, back uh, at all that God has done to bring us to this point. And then next week, we're going to talk about some of the things that we anticipate in the year to come. Uh, This week, though, we're going to talk about, in fact, here's the question that I want to ask today. Where are we as a church? I mean, God has done quite a bit to get us here to this place, to this building, in this moment in history. But where exactly uh, are we as a church? And I, of course, I'm not asking a geographical question there. I'm really asking a question about our health as a church. Are we healthy? Are we as a church making an impact in people's lives in the city of Evansville? Are we creating, in the words of Dallas Willard, spiritual heroes? Men and women who are heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. Are we creating those kinds of people? One Sunday, three or four months ago, I was walking out to my car after a service here. The building was locked. Uh, Everyone had gone home. I was the last to leave. And a question came to my mind that has come to my mind uh, on numerous occasions over the years. Uh, But it came to my mind again that day, and it said, what exactly did we accomplish today? That was the question that I had. What exactly did we accomplish today? And I thought to myself, well, you know, Nathaniel and the band blew me away with their music and with their talent. And all of the volunteers that were here today did their jobs extremely well. And for better or for worse, I, I taught the Word of God. All of those are very good things to do. But I wondered... So what? Is anyone being changed? Or or are we just doing church because that's what you do on Sundays? You should know that people who are much smarter than I are asking these same questions in a larger sense about the collective church in America. There is deep concern that the church in America has lost its way and that it is having little to no impact whatsoever. And this concern actually began a long time ago. A theologian and a missionary uh, wrote this back in the 1970s. 
He wrote this, much of the activity of the church today is dangerously near to trifling while a world is being shaken to its depths. Trifling. Perhaps multiple decades of this is why, according to a survey by the Barna Group that was published just last year, perhaps that's why among millennials, those 30 and under, among millennials, only two in 10 believe that church is important. If what the church is doing is just trifling, that statistic makes perfect sense. How can we expect anyone to believe that it's an important component to their life if all we're doing is just things that are trifling? And I think that, that one of the hardest skills in life to master is honest, maybe even ruthlessly honest, self-evaluation. But I'm convinced that any person or any organization that wants to grow, that wants to become more effective, that wants to make more of an impact, has to be ruthlessly honest with themselves about their strengths and about their weaknesses. And so I want to I talk for just a few moments about our strengths as a church. What are our strengths here at City Church? And I'm going to mention a number of them. First, I think the greatest strength that we have is, that, is something that we talked about last week, and that is that God is on our side. I think that's one of our strengths. God is on our side. I also believe that we have the best, most hardworking, generous, sincere congregations that I have ever experienced. You guys are incredible. You should know that. I am continually in awe of you. In fact, I want to tell you something that just happened to me this morning. You wouldn't expect this. An older woman in our church She's been with us for a long time. She asked me, she said to me, you know, Jeff, you used to just preach you know, like you'd, you'd wear your shirt, you'd t- untucked, and you'd just preach in your shirt and jeans, and now you're wearing sport coats. Why are you doing that? I really liked it when you did the other. Now, that you wouldn't expect from an older person in, in a church, would you? So I'm going to do that today. I'm going to just, I'm just going to throw that to the side, and I'm going to take off my belt here. And... There we go. That's what she wanted. So here we go. All right? You guys are incredible. Roll up my sleeves. Tell your friends when you invite them to come to our church, just say, you won't believe what happens at our church. I also believe that besides uh, God being on our side and having, you know, like the best congregation, I think we've got the finest staff in Evansville. I have told you that before. I really do believe that. I believe God has given us an awesome building here that we can grow into. I think we've got a big enough vision over here that uh, it will keep us busy for a long time, and it will keep us dependent upon God for us to fulfill that vision. Uh, I think we have men on our elder board who have made significant sacrifices. They're one of our strengths. They've made significant sacrifices so that this church could exist and so that you can meet Christ and that you can grow in grace and truth. And these men themselves love Christ and they want to grow. I think the culture of our church, the things that we value, make this the kind of church that anyone could come and feel accepted and have the time that they need to respond to Christ without feeling judged in any way. And I think our emphasis on the gospel of Jesus as the summum bonum upon which our church is built is the power and the only way that people can experience genuine transformation. Those are some of our key strengths. I'm sure I could mention many more, but those are the ones that come to my mind this morning. 
And those are strengths that I think we should be very excited about. But I want to be candid with you this morning. I believe something is missing here at City Church. And I believe that what's missing is very critical. And it's something that I think is missing in many churches. Been missing in many churches that I've been a part of or that I've pastored. I think it's missing in the collective church in Evansville. I think uh, I thought it about the collective church in Dallas when I was in Dallas. I thought it was missing there. So it's not just city church. But, you know, I'm not responsible to lead and to shepherd other churches in the city of Evansville. I'm only responsible for this church. And you should know that a few weeks ago, I blocked out a whole week to just pray and reflect and to seek God about this thing that I think is missing in our church. In our church. And I've spoken with our staff and I've spoken with our elders about this just to make sure that I'm not the only one who senses it. And so just as we, are very, uh, we were very honest about our strengths, I think it's important to be equally honest about what's missing from City Church. And that's what I'm going to spend my time on this morning. And I want, to, uh, I want to ask you, if you would, I want to, I want to talk about our weakness uh, by asking you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to take you to a very famous passage that uh, some of you are probably very familiar with. And it's in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to take you to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. And I want to start the reading from verse 16. Matthew says that then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I should mention to you that Jesus has been crucified and he has been resurrected. When they saw him, verse 17, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, look, there's so much about these verses that we could talk about. And and if we were in sort of a normal sermon series, I would go into great detail about this. But so that we don't miss the main thing this morning, I just want to focus on the one imperative that Jesus gives his disciples here just before he ascends into heaven. And it's in verse 19. And it's this. Here's the one imperative that he gives to his disciples. He says, make disciples of all nations. Now, all of the other words in verses, in, 19, in verses 19 and 20, going, baptizing, teaching, those are how all how you do the one imperative in those verses, make disciples. And here's what I think is missing from City Church. A commitment to making and being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. A commitment to making and being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that you understand, I'm here to tell you that that's a leadership issue at City Church, and it falls squarely on my shoulders. See, I think think this is what's happened. I think that, that I and a whole generation of pastors got caught up in the idea of church growth. And while our intent was good, church growth for us focused more on numbers 
than it did building disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, there's something to be said for numbers as a sign of, churches, of a church's health. There is. But only if the numbers represent people who are deciding to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Many of us in my generation of pastors, we talked about winning people to Christ and making Christians. But you know what? Here's the interesting thing. Do you know how often the word Christian is used in the New Testament? Only three times. The word disciple, on the other hand, is used 269 times in the New Testament. The New Testament is a book about disciples, written by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what's happened today is that we have churches in America who are filled with undiscipled disciples. I'm not saying that these people in these churches haven't believed in Jesus Christ. Please understand, I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they haven't yet decided to follow Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do the rest of the morning is I want to explain four things about discipleship for you that you need to know. And I want to start with this. I want to start with a definition of discipleship because I know that the word disciple is a word that isn't used frequently in our culture. Here's a definition of discipleship. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who intends on becoming like Christ systematically and progressively rearranges his or her own affairs to that end despite the cost. Let me read that again. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who intent on becoming like Christ. See, not just that they believe, but they want to become like Christ. They're going to follow him. They want to become like Christ. Systematically and progressively rearranges his or her own affairs to that end of becoming like Christ despite the cost. And by the way, this is precisely what Jesus meant when he said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you see how being a disciple of Jesus differs from merely believing in Jesus? There's, there's, there's an intentional decision in, in, in discipleship to become like Christ. There's also a rearranging of everything in a person's life to make that possible. And third, whatever the cost is, it's not too high. C.S. Lewis once said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. I can imagine that right now, as you're hearing this, as I talk about becoming a disciple and and rearranging your whole life to that end and, and doing it regardless of the cost, I can imagine that some of you feel that that definition of discipleship seems extreme. It seems over the top. And so I want to just talk for a moment now about the motivation for discipleship. What would cause a person to make that kind of commitment 
that we just described. And I think two things would, would move a person to that kind of commitment to Jesus. The first is the profound love of Jesus displayed on the cross. One of Paul's disciples, the Apostle Paul, said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't think we have that verse up on the screen or the uh, reference, but let me read it to you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. It's the love of Christ that would cause a person, as they see, them, as they see what Jesus did on the cross, that compels a person to become a disciple of Jesus. One of the great uh, historic hymns of the faith It's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It expresses this this thought well, because the author says that when he thinks about what Jesus did on the cross for him, he said, that love, he says, demands my soul, my life, my all. On the cross, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die so that you and I could live the life that he deserved to live. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. And understand that the only way that God could ever love you and accept you as a flawed and sinful person was if he, in the person of his son, bore the punishment for your sin. And when you take that into your soul, when you really take that in, there is something that happens to you that your whole, your whole life changes, that it becomes, it becomes not about uh, trying to obey and, and do all the right things out of fear. It becomes out of unbelievable love for the one who showed me that kind of unparalleled love. So one reason that people would, would make that kind of commitment that radical commitment is because of the love of Christ as shown on the cross. But here's the, second, here's the second reason. And I think this doesn't get talked about enough. The second motivation for discipleship is this. The recognition that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived and knows everything there is to know about our lives and our universe. Now, that's kind of long. I want to say it again because I want you to think about this. The recognition that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. He was brilliant, and he knows everything there is to know about our lives and our universe. That would cause someone to be motivated to make that kind of commitment to discipleship. Here's what I mean by that. You know something, it doesn't matter who it is. It's impossible to trust someone with something if you don't believe that they're competent with it. Like, like for instance, would you go to a surgeon that you don't believe knows what he or she is doing? Would you go to a car mechanic that knows nothing about cars? Of course not. But Jesus demonstrated his brilliance throughout the Gospels. I want you to think about some of these things. Number one, he once changed the molecular structure of water into wine. That very same knowledge made it possible for him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people with it. Why? Because he could create matter from the energy that he knew how to access from the universe right where he was. He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. Jesus knew how to suspend gravity. He knew how to interrupt weather patterns. He knew how to eliminate an unfruitful tree without a saw or an axe. He only needed a word. 
Jesus must be amused by the things that we give uh, Nobel Prizes for in light of his actions and all the things that he understood. Understand that in the ethical domain, Jesus brought an understanding of life that has influenced uh, world thought more than any other person. And I guess one of the greatest testimonies to his intelligence is that he knew how to enter physical death, actually to die, and then to live beyond that death. Hear me on this. Jesus demonstrated his mastery over every phase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual. You can trust that Jesus always has the best information on everything, and he certainly has the best information on things that matter the most in life. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote of Jesus, that he is before all things In Colossians 1, he says this, and in him, all things hold together. Do you understand that Jesus is what what holds our universe together? Without Jesus holding it together, it would just vaporize. But Jesus holds it all together. The love of Jesus and the brilliance of Jesus demand radical commitment to him. The kind that says, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to rearrange my life despite the cost, to follow him, even if it were to cost me my whole life. Because of his love and his brilliance, nobody else on the planet has better knowledge about how to live on this life, excuse me, in this life, in this world that he created than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing that I think you need to know about discipleship this morning. We talked about the definition of discipleship. We talked about, well, what's the motivation for this radical commitment? Well, here's the third thing, and I'm I'm calling this the fact of discipleship because you need to understand you are somebody's disciple. Every one of you here are somebody's disciple. Like, I know that you like to think of yourself because, you know, we're, we, we live in this individualistic Western culture. You like to think of yourself as your own man or your own woman, but you are not. There are no exceptions to the rule that you are somebody's disciple. In fact, the very reason that you think you're your own man or woman is because someone taught you to think that way. The reality is that we're all disciples of someone, and most of us are disciples of several somebodies parents, teachers, mentors, rock stars, actors, movie stars, authors, philosophers. We're all disciples of someone. It's not whether you're a disciple, it's who you are a disciple of. And I'm going to tell you something one of the major transitions of life is to recognize who you are a disciple of, who has taught you, who has mastered you, and to evaluate the results in you of their life and teaching. And it's very frightening to do that sometimes because it requires ruthless, ruthlessly honest self-examination. But remember, without that kind of honesty, no one can grow or become more effective or make more of an impact. And when you do that kind of ruthless self-examination, it often results in the ability to choose a better master. And I'm going to ask you again, who better to be a disciple of than the smartest person in the universe who loves you with an unparalleled love? If you aren't rearranging your life 
at whatever cost to follow Jesus, you're guaranteeing a screwed up life. If you go your own way, if you go the way that every, uh, you know, that Hollywood tells you to go or that, that some teacher told you to go, if you're not following Jesus, you're guaranteeing a life that is just going to be wasted, meaningless. It's going to blow up all over you and all over everybody else around you. You're a disciple. Everybody is of someone. You need to ask yourself, who am I a disciple of? And ask yourself, why am I not a disciple of the smartest, most brilliant person in the universe who loved me like no one else ever has and ever, and ever will? And then finally, I want to make, I want to make this, this point. I want you to understand this. And I've called this the cost of non-discipleship. Because there is a cost to discipleship. Let's be honest about that. But you need to understand that there is a greater cost to non-discipleship. I said in the definition of discipleship earlier that there's a cost to becoming a disciple. There absolutely is. Let's, again, I don't, I don't want to diminish that. To be a disciple of Jesus might cost you your weekend trips so that you could practice the spiritual discipline of worshiping your Lord and Savior on Sundays with other disciples of Jesus. It might cost you your job if your job prevents you from being a disciple of Jesus. It might cost you a night of the week when you go to spend some time with other believers in a, in a life group or when you choose to disciple a group of men or women or, or if you go to a class of some kind. It might cost you a night of the week. Your kids might get mad at you that you aren't willing to put them in a weekend travel league because your first commitment is to worship Christ and to teach them by your example to do the same. They might get mad at you. It might cost you a new car because you give generously to the cause of Christ. It It might cost you a boyfriend or a girlfriend because you choose to honor Christ with your body rather than to give it away to someone who isn't committed enough to marry you. It might cost you a friend when they learn that you are one of those radical Jesus people. Or if you live in other parts of the world, it might cost you your freedom or even your very life. But there's a far greater cost to non-discipleship. Even if you just consider this life, I'm not talking about the next life for now. I'm talking about just this life alone. There's a far greater cost to non-discipleship. Jesus, uh, he told a couple stories, like back to back one time, and and they go like this. One of them is in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. And then he follows that right up with this. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you notice that in both of those accounts, neither of those two men are upset about the cost? Why? Because the value of what they're they're buying, the opportunity that it presents, is far greater than the cost They're not worried about the cause. It's the cost of not buying the field, not buying the pearl, 
that bothers them. The cost of non-discipleship is greater than the cost of discipleship. Non-discipleship costs you, listen to this, it costs you abiding peace. It costs you a life penetrated throughout by love. It costs you faith that sees every circumstance in the light of God's overriding goodness and sovereignty. It costs you a hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. It costs you the power to do what is right and to withstand the forces of evil. In short, the cost of non-discipleship is the abundance of life that Jesus said that he came to bring. The abundance of meaning, the abundance of peace, the the abundance of purpose, the abundance of love, the abundance of hope. Non-discipleship costs you those things. The person with the right perspective sees following Christ not only as a necessity, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest possible plane that a human being can live on. And some of you today are experiencing the price of non-discipleship. I mean, look, I... Yes, I know that you believe in Jesus. I get that. You're saved. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not not challenging that. But you aren't following Jesus. You haven't rearranged your life to follow Jesus and to become like him. And it's costing you dearly. And those of us in church leadership, pastors like me, we are largely responsible for that. I quoted Dallas Willard when I began this talk. And he said this, The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. We have, as pastors, I have, pitched the message of the gospel too low. And we have, I have, done so on the altar of church numerical growth. This is why we have people who attend church 1.8 times a month. This is why 8 out of 10 millennials think church is unimportant. They don't see it radically transforming people's lives. And it doesn't seem to cost much. Anything valuable costs something. This is why there's such low interest uh, in or confidence in the Bible these days. This is why so few in churches are discipling anyone else. This is why Christian men are way more committed to their jobs and careers than they are to Jesus and their families. This is why so many divorces occur among Christian people. This is why addiction is so common in the church. This is why churches have such a hard time keeping unity. Someone gets their feelings hurt over something unrelated to morality or doctrine, and they just pick up and leave. Or someone thinks the music is too loud, and so they quit giving to their church. That's why we have this kind of stuff. Because we have pitched the message too low. We have sacrificed discipleship on the altar of numerical growth. Let me, I'm going I'm to close uh, with this. My son and I were watching a Netflix documentary um, the other night, and it was on the first spy school ever set up for American soldiers, and it occurred during World War II. The men who were in the school, uh, the soldiers, you know, they're sitting at their desks on the very first day, and the instructor uh, calls them to attention, and he begins to speak. 
And no sooner than he has begun to speak, the door to the room opens and enemy combatants begin firing their machine guns into the room. Every man hit the floor. But the instructor told them to get back in their seat because it turned out it was just a drill. And suddenly, in that moment, he had everyone's attention. In the last chapter of Ephesians, in the New Testament, the writer of, of Ephesians does something very similar, except he makes it clear it is not a drill. He says, for our struggle, this is everyone in hu- every human being, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want you to know that if I could open up the curtain into the next world, you would see that there is an enemy right now who seeks to deceive you and destroy you and to make you and your loved ones, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, your husband, your wife, wants to make them pay the cost of your non-discipleship in the most painful ways imaginable. Some of those in this, in this life and some of those in the next. The only way to resist the unseen spiritual forces is by following the way of Jesus, making an intentional decision to become like him and rearranging your entire life to that end. I'm going to talk more next week about what we're going to do as a church to begin to emphasize discipleship. But I want to leave you this morning with just a few practical suggestions very quickly. Here's the first one. I'd like to suggest that you rearrange your priorities to attend church more frequently. Instead of 1.8 times a month, how about three times a month? And that's still 16 weeks that you don't have to go to church, right? But how about rearranging your life to do that because you want to be a part of his church and worship him, that, that, that you want to participate in that spiritual discipline that any disciple of Jesus Christ practices? That's the first one. Here's the second one. I'd like to suggest that you consider a city life group. Sean Little is in charge of those in our church. You will not grow as a disciple outside of the community of believers in Jesus Christ. There's no Lone Ranger discipleship. Here's the third. I'd like to suggest that you spend some time this week examining your own life and your own commitment to discipleship and be very honest with yourself. Some of you, when you do that, you will find that your commitment to discipleship has waned. Maybe it's busyness, maybe it's affluence, maybe it's cynicism. have gotten in the way. Some of you will find that you just never really became intent on following Jesus. Yes, you believe in him. Yes, you're saved. But you never really became intent on following Jesus. I'd like to suggest that you ask yourself, what is my commitment to that? And maybe even as part of that ruthless examination, asking yourself, who Who has been my master? Who have I been discipled by throughout the course of my life? Because everybody's a disciple of someone. Who have been the people that have discipled me unofficially over the years? And what has been the result of their life and teaching in my life? 
And finally, I'd like to suggest that you ask yourself, or excuse me, that you consider finding a place here at City Church that you can serve. You know, we talked last week about children's ministry and first impressions ministry, and we got a bunch of people that signed up. Thank you so much for doing that. But a disciple of Christ serves people. After the service, again, right out there in the city square, there are going to be two tables, one for, uh, one for working with children and one for working on a first impressions team. If you haven't already done so, go out there, sign up to be a part of one of those things. Here's the thing. There is a cost to non-discipleship of Jesus for you. And there's a cost to the local church. Just look at the church in Europe where beautiful old church buildings are often bought for homes nowadays and often turned into museums. When a church becomes a museum, you know that it lost somewhere along the way its mission. I don't want this place to become a museum someday. Let's go after our vision statement. Let's do something that no other organization, no school, no government, no business can do. Let's bring the power of the Spirit of God to bear on this city as our lives are continually being transformed by our commitment to making and being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Would you pray with me? Our Lord uh, Jesus, earlier this morning, we sang, I surrender all, or we sang, I surrender. And, and when we think about surrendering, Lord Jesus, you know, it's easy to sing. It's easy to say that. Lord, it's, it's hard for us to even surrender, like, the things that we spend our time on. It's hard for us to even think about rearranging our priorities so that we could become a disciple of you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts not only the beauty of discipleship, but the cost of non-discipleship. Lord, I pray for for us as a church that you would would put upon uh, my heart, our hearts as leaders, uh, the passion to make disciples, to be disciples. And Lord Jesus, that you would give us wisdom to know how best to do that here in this church, at this place of time, in this historic moment. And Lord, I pray that as a result that we would be transformed people. And as a result of our transformed lives by the gospel of Jesus, that that we would bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. We love you, Lord Jesus. Your love for us, your stunning brilliance demands my soul, my life, my all. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and pray today. Amen.